you know, there's that one um, saying, you are what you eat. And that is sort of just sort of the beginning of the, you know, the nested onion thing, because really we are what our microbiome eats to a certain extent, whether a plant or a person, because of what our microbiome does with our diet. But then if you go even deeper, you know, into what, how are we growing our crops and how are we raising our animals and what is that doing to the nutrient quality and nutrient profiles on, um, on our foods. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label that distinguishes soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock. You just heard from author and biologist Anne Beclay speaking about how there's more than one way to succeed on this planet, and that sometimes that's through cooperation. This is the second part of a two-part episode with Anne today. You'll hear her speak more about human nutrition and the human microbiome, and then in the next episode, she'll go into soil biology. Remember that all of our podcast episodes are also filmed, and if you'd like to watch our guests in person, please head on over to our website, realorganicproject.org, or find us on YouTube. Now let's get back to the conversation with my co-director, Dave Chapman, and author, Anne Beclay. I would like to go, actually, up to your new book that you're working on. Uh, David said uh, your, your working title is You Are What Your Food Ate. And, um, yeah. So please, tell me, tell me about it. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that you were... You had this sort of line of questioning um, about how did I get interested in food, and and then I've been nattering on about coevolution and things eating things, things eating other things, and it was um, it was very interesting for David and I, and especially me with my sort of interest in 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 health, connections between diet and health. I think it matters how we grow our food because of all of this biology that I've been talking about, the, the various things that fungi bring to plants, these bacterial metabolites that, um, that help a plant survive and be healthy, these interactions between plant phytochemicals and ruminants. All of this is something that is um, Probably about the most complex thing you can think about if you're, if you're starting here on, you know, one end of the chain with the soil and, um, and everything. You're trying to link that to plant health and then you're taking plant health and you're trying to link that to animal health. And then you're trying to link, okay, who's eating the plants and animals that were grown in that kind of soil? Oh, us, the human beings. So what does that mean for our health? And it's, it's a big topic. Um, I dare say David and I wish we had like at least another couple of years to work on this, but that's just not the way it's just things don't work like that. And, and even if we did, Dave, there would be more, we would probably just get more frustrated with what more we need to research or don't feel that we have a good enough grasp of. And uh, what about this linkage and that? Um, but it, we p- sort of picked that title because you know, there's that one um, saying, you are what you eat. And that is sort of just sort of the beginning of the, you know, the nested onion thing, because really we are what our microbiome 
eats to a certain extent, whether a plant or a person, because of what our microbiome does with our diet. But then if you go even deeper, you know, into what, how are we growing our crops and how are we raising our animals and what is that doing to the nutrient quality and nutrient profiles on, um, on our foods. There's, um, there's a lot, there's a lot out there. And, and I think one of the things that's been really kind of eye opening for me about this is that, especially in nutrition research and just in the way that most people talk about diet and food is that we think about food as, um, uh, we need our food. We need food, obviously, from the womb forward, you're looking at food as a way for that human being to grow and develop into a normal person. And that takes um, certain things in food. That's where we're concerned with stuff like fats and proteins and carbohydrates, because those are the nutrients that fuel growth and development. But then once you're all grown up, I mean, right, we don't need to keep growing. We're... <laughs> We're not like an indeterminate tomato plant, okay? We stop growing, we're set. Now the job is, and the job of diet, is to take care of the biomass. How do we take care of biomass? It's not, it's not per se through fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. It's through other parts of our diet, and this is where minerals and phytochemicals come into the picture. So you grow your biomass, and then you got to take care of your biomass. So what we're learning is that phytochemicals um, have a great deal to do with our ability to prevent the onset of chronic diseases in, um, in particular, as well as diseases brought about by um, oh, various other things that we run into in the challenges of being a human being. And so you want, sure, yeah. Just a question for people who don't have uh, maybe the background. Could you describe in a simple way what a phytochemical is? Oh, yeah, I know. Um, phytochemical. Gosh, you know, it's sort of, you have, it's interesting how that word got picked, right? Um, phyto means plant, chemical means chemical. So some people are like, mm, chemicals, I'm not so sure about that. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, so then the nutrition crowd came along and they're like, phytonutrient. Oh, okay, that sounds, that sounds good. What, what these are, these are these compounds that plants produce by the gazillion. And an example, examples of phytochemicals are, uh, they typically underlie the colors that we see in fruits and vegetables. So beta carotene is what can, um, give yellowish and orange things like a carrot or a squash that color. Anthocyanin tends to uh, imbue, imbue foods with uh, reds and purples. So let's take a blueberry or a beet or something like that. So these are these are compounds that that plants make. And you think why are they why are plants making all these compounds? I mean that seems like a lot of work. Well, some of these compounds are part of the plant defense system. And so if they are encountering a challenge, they'll and plants can gin up all kinds of phytochemical cocktails for that matter. And so a plant that's experiencing, say, a really hot, dry, drought, droughty summer, some of these phytochemicals will allow a plant to withstand drought better. Some phytochemicals might allow a plant to withstand freezing temperatures better. And 
phytochemicals are in the right, um, the right levels. They're also very helpful for human health and they're also helpful for animal health. And so this is the only place that we get these, these compounds, these phytonutrients, phytochemicals is, is out of the plants. And because, you know, once you reach <clears throat> um, young adulthood, you're mostly, your biomass is set and you've got to take care of it. That's where phytochemicals can come into the picture. And so, of course, you want your carrot or your squash or your apple to be as dense with phytochemicals as possible because they're helpful. They're helpful to our health. And we didn't as always... and as diverse. And diverse, yeah. And what's interesting, for um, for a long time in plant science, people had picked up on these compounds like beta-carotene and quercetin and the phenols and the f- flavonoids and, and all of this stuff. And it's just, an, it's just a, a big soup of, of phytochemicals. If you get into the literature, it is, it is dizzying how many different phytochemicals there are. And scientists initially didn't know what these things were for. I mean, they knew what a plant could do with calcium, or they knew what a plant could do with, you know, magnesium, but what does a plant do with beta carotene? So that was the name. They were called plant secondary metabolites for a long time because it was assumed that, believe it or not, for a while, like these things probably don't it's just classic. It's like junk DNA. Oh, these things probably aren't really very important. We'll call them plant secondary metabolites. Okay. I mean, chemically, that's what they are. You know, they're, they are metabolites of the plant. But then, you know, as science progresses and as we learn more, these um, compounds are hugely important to the plants and to the animals that eat those plants. So um, you would want to be growing your plants in ways that stimulate um dense concentrations of phytochemicals. And so this is where um, conventional ag sort of runs up against biology because you start, you start compensating and you start compensating for biology and the plant will respond. They're like, oh, you're taking care of all of my pest challenges? Well, there, there is no way that I'm going to take, you know, my hard-earned photosynthetic energy then and, and be making these phytochemicals that I previously had to make to fend off these pests because this agro product is taking care of that for me. So then you get, I guess, for lack of a better word, these kind of watered-down plants that uh, don't have phytochemicals. And the other thing about phytochemicals, Dave, which is interesting, is they... Um, they lend flavor to plants, a lot of the flavors that we like. So you dilute phytochemicals and then you're, you're sort of down to your sugars, which, I mean, what human brain doesn't like sugar, but sugars kind of all taste the same. So once you've had a sweet thing, sweet just tastes like sweet. Whereas, um, you know, the way a really ripe plum might taste, or it happens to be, you know, we just got this fabulous um, box of peaches and I'm dreaming of one right now. It's just in its peachiness. I don't exactly know what phytochemicals are given that peach, it's peachiness, but boy, it sure, um, it sure makes it taste good. And so, you know, maybe what my, you know, my cells that are picking up on those phytochemicals are telling, you know, the algorithm is if you like this peach, you might like this other stone fruit, you know, or you might like this. I don't, I, you know, I don't know. I was at a I was at a online seminar from the Tuck Business School, 
And they were talking about making artificial meat. I, I might have even told David the story, but it was fascinating. And, you know, they had a panel of four people and they were going, and we've been working and figuring out which are the metabolites that produce flavor. And we've got it down to five. And we're figuring out how to play with those in our production when we grow the fake meat. And I said, I had a question, it was a popular question, so they asked it. I said, what about the thousands of other metabolites? Are you looking at them? And they said, well, no, we're just looking at the ones that affect flavor. And, and my question was, well, do you think that they might have some unknown impact on our health? And they said, well, we never thought of that. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that, that, there's the problem, right? You might be wiping out the keystone species and have no idea of what you're doing, of what, what havoc you're wreaking on my health that, or your own health. That's correct, Dave. And not only that, but these five flavor compounds that they think they've um, got it down to. Okay, well, that's what, <laughs> that's what the particular um, research group thought were, were the flavors. What if you went and asked a Japanese person, I don't know, or somebody from Albania or an Aboriginal person, what are they tasting, right? What is What are their perceptions of flavor and how has human evolution um, affected, you know, the respective genomes of the long line of people that the Albanians and the Aboriginal person um, and so on that they came from? And so, you know, your five flavors that you think you identified, they might not be my five flavors. So that, yeah. that to me is the other very interesting thing about the whole um, topic of uh, synthesized, synthesized foods and, and especially the, the meat, the meat, the fake meat foods. We, yeah, that could be a whole conversation we could have on that. And I would like to sometime, truly. But let me ask right now, because I'm curious, you've done a lot of research, you've pulled together, you've looked at so much, you know, original research in, in putting together your book. It is, is it your opinion? Do you, have you had this aha moment that in fact, the health of the soil that grows the plants that the humans and the animals eat and then the humans eat the animals. Do you believe that that has a significant impact on uh, somebody's health? Yeah, yeah, I do. And it's, uh, it's not the one thing. I mean, it's certainly not the one thing. And this is where um, I think it was that, was it, is it Alexis or Alex de Tocqueville, the French guy who said, the thing about Americans, they prefer a simple lie to a complex truth. And so I, I don't exactly know the context for that, but I came across that and I'm like, oh, geez, is that ever, is that ever apt in these times? And, and I bring it up, Dave, because there is not one thing that affects our health. It is a constellation of factors, and these factors change um, throughout our life, depending on what our life challenges are, uh, from you know infant to young adult to middle age. So those challenges change, and uh, 
as our bodies change too, I mean, our immune systems are doing different things, picking up on different things. But if we don't have a decent, um, if we don't have a diet in which the foods that we're eating are as suffused with minerals and phytochemicals as possible, our, our cells and our tissues are not going to be able to get what they need to keep the biomass of our body going. So it, the whole diet picture is that it is partly about what we eat, but the what is what links to how was it grown and what are the things in that. I mean, I think Americans in particular are just so confused about the what part, like what should I eat? And it's just, we're just, we're just really confused between um, the marketing of food products, between the fact that our country is made up of so many different ethnic groups, all of whom bring their own culinary traditions to the table. So we see, you know, if we were Italian, I mean, we'd probably have a lot to say about tomatoes, for example. But yeah. with all of the ethnic groups in this country and everything that they bring, I think it... it is a, it's such an array of foods that to an American, it maybe even further complicates things because we think, oh yeah, I, I, you know, maybe I should eat, you know, dal and curried lentils and that's all I should eat. And it's like, well, maybe I, I couldn't really say, <laughs> but there's, there's, you know, there's a reason that that particular cuisine, you know, evolved the way that it did on the Indian subcontinent. And, and maybe what we really ought to be doing is, um, really playing on our power as, uh, of human omnivory. Yes. But, but even beyond that, something interesting that Alice Waters said earlier this week, she went to Paris as a young woman. She fell in love with the food with the cuisine, and she got so excited about learning how to cook that way. When she came back to America, and she tried to cook the same food, same recipes, and it just didn't taste the same. And she said no matter what she did, she couldn't get the same raw ingredients, the raw food, the vegetables, the grains, you know, they weren't the same. And, uh, you know, she came to appreciate appreciate that very much. And it became sort of the guiding philosophy of Chez Panisse to try and locate farmers who would grow food in a way that it did taste the way it tasted in France at that time. Do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, a lot. And this is where perhaps I was just reading the other day about olive oil. And, um, there's a particular olive oil that, that I, you know, buy at the local store where we shop and I like it. And then I was reading about olive oil and I'm like, Oh my God, you're holding. What do you mean? There's hundreds of different kinds of olive oil. Oh man, what am I, what am I missing out on? And what could that olive oil be imparting in terms of flavor? Mostly because olive oil flavors get carried in fats and, and what am I missing out flavor wise? And what am I missing out, you know, health and nutrition wise? And this, I think maybe what Alice was running into was the, um, you know, this is not a well understood 
concept, and it's, it's, it's kind of fluffy, but conceptually, I think we all can understand it, and that is terroir. And of course, we use that in the wine world. And, and it's said that where the vine is growing, those um, physiographic conditions, so the way the wind blows, the climate, the soil, the is it a south-facing slope, west-facing slope, all of these things that the vine is, you know, pulling in and integrating is expressed in the flavor of the of the wine itself. And I think that I am not surprised one bit that Alice Waters had that experience because however the French were growing the beets that and say they grew a beet, maybe not for the beet, but for the greens. And those those greens were a part of some dish. And then Alice came here and we don't really have a tradition of growing beets. And so she got the beets that were probably the dominant beet of the seed company. And the greens were completely, completely different. And so there's, I think it's sort of a mix of terroir and also cultivars, right? The French, yes. every, every region in every country has their cultivars, which lend flavor to the particular foods. And these cultivars were probably picked long ago, you know, let's say before we got into the yield trap anyway, these cultivars um, grew very well there. And that's why farmers um, picked them. It was a mix between, oh, it does well in this climate and it has that other ingredient we're really looking for, which is flavor and taste. So that and, that's a winning combination. And it does well in this system of farming that we are practicing. Yes. We can't, we can't ignore that. We see right now, it's not that our climate has changed so dramatically yet, but we see that the breeding uh, of our different food stocks, we're getting very different varieties. And it's because our, our, the way we farm is unrecognizable to somebody 80 years ago. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, we, I think there was some pie chart. I can't remember where I saw it, but it, it was a, a picture of wheel with every um, color, you know, from yellows, to oranges, reds, all the way around. Like each slice of that color, like say in the purple category, there'd be like 15 different purples. And each of those slivers of color represented cultivars of food, different things like eggplant. Um, or, you know, yellow would be the squashes. And that we've lost so many cultivars from regions that um, you and I today don't even know what they are, Dave, because we were not able to eat those in our lifetime. And, yeah. and I think maybe, you know, what Alice had the benefit of experiencing in France or anyone who goes to a different country for a while and eats the food is your cucumbers taste really different than our cucumbers. Yeah. Really different. And... And so we all have become, you know, unfortunately accustomed to what agriculture has presented us with, which is the easiest cucumbers to grow in the greatest volume in the shortest length of time. And that doesn't always make for flavor and nutrition. Well, I'd say it probably doesn't at all, usually. I, I'm looking forward to an upcoming conversation with Mark Schatzker. Oh, yeah. Author of The Dorito Effect. He's wonderful. And uh, it's a great book, and he really gets into this. So that will be, that will be fun. So let me ask another th question. 
Right now we have soil health institutes and regenerative agriculture and ecological farming and agroecological farming and sustainable farming and permaculture farming. And it seems to me that all of these were intended as variations on a theme. And actually that theme was defined by organic, which was based on very uh, long-standing proven traditional ways of growing food. These traditional agricultures were all really about soil health. And I wonder if you could uh, define what healthy soil means to you for somebody who doesn't understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um... <laughs> Just have to tell you this quick story. We had um, two friends over the other night, 10 feet away. It was the most uninviting dinner invite ever. It was like, you bring your own stuff, you bring your call, everything, your food, your plates, you take it all with you, but we can talk while you eat your dinner and we eat what we prepared. So my friend was there and we're sitting in a different place than we normally do. And she says, oh my God, what, my basil, like your basil is so buff what are you doing? And I'm like, just my normal stuff. And then she's like, your maples. I have maples in pots. They're so muscly. You've got muscly maples. And I'm like, I'm just doing what I normally do, which is I feed the soil with my various concoctions of organic matter. And so what that is, Dave, I mean, I don't buy products to bring in here and layer on top of the soil. I did Garden's generating so much stuff, and my favorite thing is leaves. In the fall, I gather them up, and, and they get turned into leaf mold, and I've got the worm bin, and, and so on and so forth. And to me, a healthy soil is a soil that gets fed with the things that the life forms in the soil want to eat and need to eat. And so that is... Um, Complex forms of organic matter, like, you know, my leaf mold, that's not completely, it's a little bit broken down, but it's not completely broken down. Something's going to eat that and, um, and do well on it. And the other thing that soil life needs, you know, that, so that's just the sheer organic matter that it's eating, the physical organic matter. And then there's all these exudates that I talked about. And so I want my buff basil and my muscly maples to be pumping exudates out into the soil to feed their microbiome. I didn't make that basil buff or those maples muscly. Their microbiome and the plant body did that on its own. And so to me, it is, you know, healthy soil is, that's a normal soil. I had, to, you know, I should have told my friend, like, there's nothing special about this soil. It's functioning normally and like it should be. It just happens to be in my garden and it, it is a, a bit of an artificial environment with the maples in the pots, but still that soil is functioning normally for soil in a pot with a maple tree in it. Okay. And I think what people lose, lose sight of, and especially anybody who's ever tried to grow plants, I can't believe how many people think their soil's broken. And I mean, and it is to a certain extent, Dave, if you think about so ag soils that have been hammered and that haven't been properly taken care of, but you're say average soil, the questions that I get asked, and these are mostly from gardeners and they haven't had plows and agrochemicals 
you know, all over their property. It's just their soil that came with the place. And so they think their soil's broken and the soil's no good. And I'm like, let's back up here. You're going to put your plants in your soil and then every, every iota of organic matter that drops out of those plants, you're going to leave it there. Okay. You might scoop it up and mix it up and let it decompose, but you're going to bring it back and you're always going to return that to the soil because that's what makes the soil function normally. And when I say normally, I also mean properly. So when you deprive soil, just like you deprive, you know, a ruminant or a person of what they need, it doesn't do well. It just, I mean, that's sort of as simple as I can put it. You starve the life of the soil or you feed them toxic things or you feed them things that they can't eat and it doesn't, soil life doesn't do well. And so when soil life doesn't do well, there's no buff basil, there's no muscly maples. You get these sorely wanting plants that if they could talk, boy, would they chew some ears off of people. Like, what are you doing? This is not good for my green body. Doesn't My body doesn't even work like that. Like, what are you thinking? Right? And uh, so to me, healthy soil is is where we pay attention to how soil, you know, soil works. And this is the beguiling thing to those in agriculture as well as gardening is soil is different everywhere. That is the big joke haha on us. We think too much. Oh, well, I did it over there, so I'll just do it over here. And it's like, no, 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 time out. Soil is different everywhere. And you can't do the things you did over in that county, maybe, in this county, or maybe you can. But what it takes is, um, and I think, God, somebody who is brilliant at this is Brian O'Hara. If you want to, if, if you want to talk to a farmer who his number one tool is his eye and his brain. And Brian is constantly observing conditions. His book, his book on no-till veg farming, that to me was like clear clear what farmers and gardeners ought to be doing before you reach for any anything, any product or me with even all my organic matter. Let's just stop for a moment and let's observe what is going on around us today, right? And Brian seems to probably, you know, at least on a daily, if not every other day, maybe hourly in some cases, I don't know, he checks in to see what's happening. Because once he can observe conditions then he knows what to do. Too often we go for that, you know, we it's that thing we fall into. Everything's a nail. Go get the hammer. Go get the sledgehammer. Look how big this nail is, right? So we we need to just use our eye and our brain sometimes. And this is part of what is um, neat about, I think, being a farmer. And if you have a farm that's been in a family for a long time or you've been on that farm for a while, you start to know that farm and its conditions and how it responds to things better than anybody can. And so it's your observations that should be informing what is happening, you know, on that farm. And I, I would hasten to say too that that applies equally well to um, animals, especially a dairy herd, right? You've got, you've got these animals and you want to, and they've been around and you know your cows, you know, talk to any, any dairy farmer. Now there's Bessie and there's Mabel and she likes this and she doesn't like that. And it's like, 
oh my God, this is just like people, <laughs> you know? I don't like that chair. I don't like to eat that. I like to sleep in. I don't like to sleep in. And so you begin to see how much individuality there is out there in the animal world and the crop world. And that as soon as we start to pay attention to that and marry it with um, the way that the soil works, a healthy, functioning, normally functioning soil works. And that then I think then you're starting to talk about what all of these various um, um, things that you listed off from regen to sustainable to agroecological to permaculture. I think, I think um, what people are striving for who are deep in these movements and whether you agree or disagree with them, I think we are all looking for that sweet spot of how do things work? How does the soil work? Because... Um, the better we understand that, the better off our plants and our animals, and ultimately we will be with how we grow our food. And, um, yeah, it, it, and it's a hard thing to understand, and it's a frustrating thing to understand. And there are people who have spent their lifetimes trying to understand this, and we still don't have all the answers. So that is, you know, that, that can be frustrating for somebody, um, in business where, I don't know, say you came from um, running a shoe factory where you had your supply chain set up and it was always this kind of shoelace and it was always this kind of upper. And so it was always standard, right? The shoe is always made of these things, always, 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 and it always works the same way. Nature, crops, animals, rarely, rarely, you know, are things the same. And so there's this constant sort of fight between standardizing things and, you know, juxtaposed against, mm, it was a drought year and there was a cold year. Oh, we've got the climate changing. You know, what this, this or that pest moved through, what, what have you. So I, I, I'm heartened to see that, that soil is at the center of many of these things because that is the center of, you know, how we grow the foods that we eat, whether you're talking plant or animal. So I really like that part of it. And I think to the extent that we can restore function to soils for the region and geography, you know, for that soil, the better off we will be. And then that sort of goes also to, um, you know, we like to grow things everywhere. Like I'm nuts, Dave. I'm trying to grow tomato and basil in Seattle. Okay. Those aren't really Seattle crops. <laughs> Sorry <Right>. to break it <laughs> to, to you. <laughs> um, now there's certain areas around Seattle that they can do pretty, pretty good. You know, they've got different temperatures and, and different rainfall going on, but still I try to do that. So part of, you know, a normal and properly functioning soil is also realizing you can't grow everything everywhere. And when you try to do that, you, you then start to realize this plant is just not, it's not made for here. It's just, you know, not made for here. I need to be checking out what does grow well in the conditions that I have uh, for this given soil type. I mean, well, you can push things. You can push things, yeah. but. Okay, let me ask you a question. Two very short questions, I think. Um, one is advice to 
eaters as they navigate this complex world of biological reality and this complex world of modern American economy. And, you know, they're often working at cross purposes. So just any advice about, uh, you know, yeah. A, a, yeah. a word of hope? Word of hope. Yeah, here's what I'm really heartened by um, is that farmers markets have made such a resurgence in the last decade. And I always like to go to a farmer's market if I'm some, you know, in some place that I haven't been before and I see there's a farmer's market. I like to go there for a couple of reasons. Um, first, it's a, um, I get to see the food. What are they growing here and what are they eating here? And I get to talk to farmers and I get to ask, well, what are you doing with this particular food or that particular food? And so it, it just keeps your horizons interesting and expanded about the possibilities with food. I also um, like to go to farmer's markets because these, you know, depending on the city and so forth, uh, you know, you will get the farmer there. Now, it's funny because I know a lot of farmers who say, I hate selling at the farmer's market. There's so many people. But yeah. I love seeing the farmers there because I get to ask them about their farm. And I get to learn a little bit, you know, more about them and their food. And so I like, I feel like I, they're kind of my lifeline to the land in a way, if I can. And I'm a person who asks a lot of questions and they're like, God, I wish she would leave. But, um, I feel like they're, they're my lifeline to the land, you know, their land on which they're growing the food that I might be eating. So, you know, that would be, be my advice. Always be asking a lot of questions and, and be keeping in mind, um, you know, kind of the basics about, you know, what do we know about healthy plants and healthy animals? And does what this farmer is telling me sound like they're, you know, more or less on the right track with things? Yeah. Okay. Final question. How important do you think it is to build a movement? Or is it enough to just make good personal decisions? <laughs> I think our times have some really interesting evidence about that, Dave. Um, how many decades have African Americans in this country been saying things about fairness and justice and many, many other things? And why is it that in the course of about one month, things changed at least in terms of people's awareness and the discussion that Black Lives Matter has brought to the fore. Why for decades were these things, was not, there were movements in the 60s around that, but they were different, you know, the Black Power Movement and so on. But if you have no movement, you have no momentum. And that is something that is really important because you get to a tipping point with a movement. And I very much hope that that's where we're at with Black Lives Matter is that this is the tipping point that is the lever on the change that I think many of us have been wanting and expecting. And certainly if you're African-American, any community of color, you want this and you need this now. I also think about... Um, the gay movement and how I never, Dave, I never thought, I never thought gay people would be able to be married ever, 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 ever. And then, wow, boom, 
there was a movement there. That movement gained momentum and things changed. And so I think likewise, the women's movement, any great movement in this country has, it's people coalescing around ideas, around concepts, around things that are very, very important to them. And when you're able to have a movement, you not only connect with the other people who are thinking like you and who also want the same things, but you're able to share that with other people who may or may not understand what this movement is about. And I think that most people who are presented with the um, goals of any movement, um, which basically at some level are about fairness and justice and doing things in ways that are better for the planet and better for people. I think when someone on the outside who maybe isn't a part of that movement, they hear that and they think, what do you mean? Things aren't that way? And so we have to say they are very much indeed not that way. That's why this movement exists and that's why we need it. And we would like you to join us, you know, at this time in this movement. So movements are definitely important. Great. Anne Beclay, thank you so much for spending this time. Yes. It's a pleasure. Yes, it was always. It was my pleasure, Dave. I, I I love the Real Organic Project. I love how um, perseverance, a movement must have perseverance, and you guys get credit for that. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you'll subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you found us. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with the links related to today's conversation, is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 26. Please join us next time for an interview with David Montgomery, geologist and professor of earth and space science at the University of Washington, as well as the co-author of The Hidden Hath of Nature with today's guest, Anne Beclay. To find a real organic farm near you, please visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms. <laughs>